0: Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 730 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know, or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. So let's pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, for this community of fellowship, and for the beauty and depth of your Word. Every time we dive into the Word, Lord, we know that we encounter you, for you are the Word made flesh. And so we pray, Lord, that we would experience you each individually, face-to-face, in the words of Scripture tonight, that you would speak to us, challenge us, comfort and convict us, offer us answers for the questions that we seek, senses of fulfillment or purpose in the areas we are experiencing desire or longing, and help us to know ultimately, Lord, that you love us and that everything that we are looking for finds its fulfillment in you. Tonight, Lord, we just ask that you would guide us That you would remove from us any distractions or worries, anything pulling us away from this time. And we pray, Lord, that we would be open, ready, and receptive to uh, receive whatever you have in store for us. So bless this time, anoint it, we lay it at your feet, and we ask all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please come join us. We are in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9. So last week, uh, in preparation for the first Sunday of Lent, we read the temptations of Jesus. And now the second Sunday of Lent, we always read uh, a different account of the transfiguration of Jesus. So it may seem like we're jumping around. That's because we are. Uh, But that is all all for particular purposes of uh, emphasizing different things about Jesus and his ministry, specifically during the season of Lent. So we'll get into why that is the case with this story, uh, the Transfiguration. But that's where we are, Matthew's account of the Transfiguration in uh, chapter 17. So let's begin. Uh, first time through, this is a, you know one of the most common scripture stories, so you know what I'm gonna say. Delete every image you have in your mind of this story. Pretend you've never heard of the Transfiguration, you've never visualized it before, you have no idea what it looks like, who's there, what's going on. You have a blank canvas in your mind in front of you. And as you hear this read, I just invite you to let the image form anew in your mind. Okay, first time through Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, do not tell the vision to anyone until the son of man has been raised from the dead. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've read this once through, you have hopefully an image in your mind of this story. We're going to read this again and I invite you to listen for any particular word or phrase that strikes you or stands out. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the passage, maybe it just resonates with you for a particular reason. Uh has to do with something going on in your own life, sparks a memory, what have you. So try and empty your mind now of anything else but the image you have formed and the words as you hear them, and pay attention to what you notice. Second time through, we're in Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate and were very much afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, Do not tell the vision to anyone until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So now that we've read this twice through, I invite you to reflect back over the passage and the things that stood out to you. Feel free to take about the next 10 minutes or so at your tables to share those things that stood out, as well as any questions that you have. If you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know what those things are. But for those of us here, take the next 10 minutes, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group for discussion and questions. What are some of the things that are standing out to you in this passage? What are some questions you have? Rick. Rick. Why why did he depict these particular three disciples? Why these three? Uh, Well, it's clear in retrospect that they had um, leadership roles in the church, especially Peter. Um, James and John, I mean, John was the oldest surviving apostle. He was the only one. uh, His martyrdom was attempted. He was uh, tempted to be martyred by being poured in boiling oil. Or dipped in boiling oil, I believe, in the Colosseum, and he survived. Uh, he's preserved from from any pain, and so they exiled him. And so he's the only one to die of natural causes. But he's at the foot of the cross, so Jesus is the only one not to leave him. Um, and then James, I don't know, package deal, I guess. James and John. I mean, James is rumored to have traveled all the way to Spain, uh, to the the you know the western end of the known world to evangelize, and then returned and was the first apostle that we know of. To be martyred, um, because we see that in Acts chapter twelve, Herod martyrs him, Um, and so we don't know if it's just a legend that he made it all the way to Spain or not, or if that's a different James, because a couple different Jameses in the New Testament. But all three of them were important leaders in the early church, and they were three of the four first disciples to be called by Jesus. So um, it's clear that he has a particular mission and intent for them in mind. Yeah. Yes. I think they want to break from that. Maybe if you watch the chosen, that might be true. Yeah. So I I happen to think um they were probably more akin to people like Matthew because Matthew was ostracized from being a tax collector. They were ostracized for being fishermen and often not able to keep holy the Sabbath and all these different laws that were imposed upon them by the Pharisees. They did very dirty, menial labor, uh, a lot of you know hard work. And you know a lot of the, the laws are easy if you are in a more privileged position and you don't have to work day and night for your family to provide and pay all the taxes that are required of you by Rome and by the temple. So uh, I think they probably had more of a kinship. I think the people that definitely hated each other were Simon the Zealot and Matthew. Because they were like, or at least Matthew, I don't know if Matthew hated him, but Simon the Zealot probably wanted to kill Matthew. Uh, at least when they first met and they, he found out he was a tax collector, just because of the way the Zealots were. Um, so there was definitely some, some tension, probably. But I don't think it was that they were trying to escape. I think Jesus is very particular. This, these are the only three that he calls aside, ever, for any particular purpose. He does this when he heals, he raises Jairus' daughter in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8. Uh, he calls these three inside, tells them not to tell anyone what happens. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night he's going to be arrested, he calls these three away to keep watch with him and pray. Uh, and so at these different moments, you know, seeing one of the most significant signs of Jesus, seeing one of the most glorious moments in Jesus's life in ministry, a prefigurement of the glory that's going to come, and then one of the most human moments of suffering and agony. So kind of this whole swatch and... Array of human emotion and experience, and you know, all the different extremes you could say of Jesus's ministry represented by these three moments that these three men are called into because they're meant to be leaders among the leaders. Yes? Um, we, were, we were discussing at our table um, at what point did this happen from the time that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist? Until the time that he was crucified, what was the timeline in between? Yes. Okay. So we have Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and he does um, quite a bit of healings and miracles. He gives you know further teachings. He starts doing miracles, and then uh, we have like the the things that we've seen in Capernaum. If you've watched the Chosen, the healing of the hemorrhaging woman, the raising of Jairus' daughter. He commissions the twelve. He sends them out. They come back, uh, and then we have. I believe John the Baptist is killed. And then we have this trek up to Caesarea Philippi after a lot of these parables. He gives his big parable discourse. Um, He's rejected in his hometown, which we think has kind of moved out of place. Uh, That probably happened very early in his ministry. But in Matthew 16, they make this trek up to Caesarea Philippi. It's like 25 miles north of Galilee. It's the only time we have on record that Jesus ever goes there. And it's outside of Jewish territory. And so it's very odd that Jesus would go here unless it was for a particular purpose. And if you recall the times that we've taught or discussed that teaching text um, of of Matthew 16, why he goes to that particular place, because it was a representation of the Roman uh, temple to Caesar that was there and the pagan god Pan, all built into this massive rock cliff in the city Caesarea Philippi. And that's where Jesus says to Peter, you are my rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. So it goes to a very specific geographical location To make it very clear, I have come to intend to start a church with you at the head that's going to be antithetical to this type of church and secular or pagan organization that only results in death. And so it's from there that we just have then a few moments of teaching, and then they go up this mountain. Uh, And So they're still clearly, at least I think, way up north outside of Galilean territory. Um, So I think a lot of people think that the Mount of Transfiguration is Mount Tabor. In fact, that's where the Church of the Transfiguration is. Um, It's a sad historical fact that there was a giant fortress on top of that tower at the time of Jesus and could not probably have been that mountain. So I think it's Mount Hermon, which is Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon. And it's like 9,000 feet tall. Um, Mount Tabor is like 2,000 feet tall which is big, but it's not that hard of a trek. You know, it's not this big, glorious mountain like maybe Mount Sinai would have been, which is what this is supposed to represent. Jesus going up this mountain just like Moses went up Sinai to encounter God. That's what Jesus is doing here. So, um, yeah, that's all that's happened. That's what's led up to this moment. That's where I think they are and why they're there. And we also discussed um, how hard it would be not to tell anyone that you had seen that. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially the other disciples, or anyone. I mean, because if you see that, that's pretty stunning, to say the least. Yeah. It'd be pretty hard not to tell anyone. Yeah. We also have to remember this is accompanied by, right before this, the conditions of discipleship and the first prediction of Jesus' passion, where he basically says, like, that he's going to be handed over, and he's going to be killed, and on the third day, he's going to be raised. And then Peter says, no, and he says, get behind me, Satan. And then this thing happens and they come back down and he keeps harping on this, like, take up your cross and follow me. He starts predicting these terrible things that are going to happen to him. And so all of that in the mix of this very, like, crazy, glorious thing that happened, I think they might want, yes, they probably want to tell people. But I think they're probably also just totally jumbled and thrown for a loop. Like, what is going on here? Like, everything he's saying is completely different than what we expected. And yet this big glorious thing, like display of God's glory and power on the top of this mountain, that's kind of like what everyone expected from the Messiah. But Jesus keeps telling them the opposite is going to happen. And so, you know, yeah, you could tell somebody, but what would it mean? It might just amount to more confusion, you know. So, but yeah, I think it definitely would have been difficult. I mean, they don't have the, uh, you know... Secretless society that we do where like everyone posts and talks about everything and whether you want people to know the government's probably listening to you anyway, you know, like, so everyone knows everything about anyone already. Uh, it was a much more, I think they were probably better at keeping things close to the best at that time, but it would have definitely been difficult. Chris. Yeah. I mean, it's, we can probably confidently say that they didn't tell each other. We don't have any, you know, clues from the text, until after the Son of Man is raised, which is what the, the request is. Uh, and we do have Peter referencing this in one of his letters. In Second Peter chapter 1, um, he says this, um, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when that unique declaration ca- came to him from the mag- from the majestic glory, this is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter later gives this testimony of what happened at the transfiguration. So it's clear, after he's been raised from the dead, this becomes more common knowledge. And, but you have the transfiguration, but then you also have the resurrection. So I think, you know, like even if the transfiguration hadn't happened, the resurrection still happened. And that changed the course of the church in human history forever. So this was just probably like another good piece of evidence when people are like, how could this person rise from the dead? Peter, James, and John could then say, well, let us tell you what happened back at Mount Hermon a couple months ago. And then that could provide more eyewitness testimony. Because remember, to prove something happened, you need at least two eyewitnesses. And so Jesus brings three for good judgment to make sure that there's no like sense that they're colluding or anything like that. Because there are instances of that happening in the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, the story of Susanna, two uh, elders try and uh, sleep with her, and they provide false testimony that she was trying to lure them. And uh, Daniel comes and is able to settle the dispute and get the truth. But um, when you add three, three people to that, it's much harder for all three of them to keep their story. So um, that might be why Jesus had those, like, chose the number three and then had different reasons for choosing those particular three. Yeah, Baron. Also, it's an odd number, too. It is an odd number. Three always means the Trinity, you know, always signifies like some kind of completion. Uh, Three is a really popular number in the Hebrew symbolism. So uh, there's a lot of threes, sevens, twelves, all those things in the Bible. Hands back there, Noah. Mount Tabor is actually a very formidable uh, trek itself too. Even with paved roads, it's still used for uh, Israeli Defense Force conditioning and training. Um, mm-hmm. When I was going up the mountain, like just it was so steep. like right? mm-hmm. the, the bus just got to tip over. Oh, and sure. It, it's a very arduous track too. So I mean, it's also possible. Yeah, it uh, could be. Could it's be. very uh, symbolic placement too. Uh, very grand view of the Valley of Gihon, where the all the tribes, the Emperor was supposed to gather. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it could be. Yes, John. Um, this reminded me of some, some detail that we noticed. So it's true that Elijah was assumed body and soul. Right? He was assumed into heaven, he yes. yes. I believe he was uh, escorted up to heaven on a chariot of fire, which, if you could choose the way you go, man, you go. that's on my list. And then, uh, both- Limbo or, uh, you know, a, the bosom of Abraham or whatnot. Sure. You notice if they're coming from two different places. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah. It's interesting. I know, like, we kind of, like, we're discussing that. Yes. So, uh, in one sense, God is outside of time, and he can do whatever he wants at any time, because he's present to all time simultaneously. However, in our time, at this point the kingdom of heaven has not yet been opened or made available, you know. Uh, and so the Hebrew conception of the afterlife was that all those who were di- who died and were faithful went to what's called the bosom of Abraham, and it was separated by this great chasm from the place of punishment or suffering. And so there's a particular parable, I believe, in the Gospel of Luke of um, the the other Lazarus and the uh, the Pharisee or the tax collector or something like that. Um, the Pharisee and Lazarus, I believe, where he, you know, is is telling the... The uh, Lazarus, who was the poor man uh, at his stoop, they both die, and he's telling uh, Abraham to go tell Lazarus on the good side, like just have him dip a finger, his finger in the water, and give me something to drink because he's so so thirsty. So there's this gives you this kind of picture in that parable of what they thought the afterlife was like, this kind of great chasm, good side, bad side, and so that's why, and that whole whole. Uh, area of the afterlife was called like Gehenna or Sheol, like the the underworld, the depths. Uh, Usually those words were affiliated with the negative side, you know, the bad side, Um, but that was just the whole idea of the underworld. And so if you have ever prayed the Apostles' Creed, there's that funny line where it says, uh, and he descended into hell. And in the original, it means he descended into Sheol or into Gehenna, which meant he went down to proclaim the gospel and the you know, opportunity for resurrection to all those faithful who were in the bosom of Abraham and welcome them up into the kingdom of heaven. And then it was then open. So for all intents and purposes, we could believe that Moses was there. Um, and Elijah potentially could have been too. He could have just had this grand vision of his departure. Um, you know, and we don't know. We, you know, this is how they wrote this. So Elisha could have been writing, yeah, he went off in this great, like, chariot of fire. Maybe just got struck by a meteor. Like, I don't know. Like, who knows? You know, but he could be in the bosom of Abraham with Moses. So either way, God can do what God wants to do. But it is kind of like a moment where God is bringing together, like, heaven and earth and even the depths of those who have died to one moment. And in the Summa Theologica, um, Thomas Aquinas' great theological work, in part three of the Summa, Aquinas devotes an entire question to the transfiguration, like why did Jesus get transfigured in the first place? And he basically says so that he can give these disciples a glimpse of the glory that is to come, so that they have an idea of the goal that is in mind. Because this journey is going to be a difficult one to continue. It's going to be wrought with loss and grief and persecution and despair and hopelessness. But this Episode here gives them an idea of the glory that is to come, even if they don't fully understand it. And so, that imagery of bringing like heaven and earth and even the depths of the earth together in this moment, like all of this is being united and glorified in Jesus Christ, is another good image, depending on, you know, where in the afterlife all these people are, you know. So, yes. Since it was just a glimpse and as glorious as he's shown to them, Mm -hmm. do you feel that he was even more glorious after the resurrection, or was it like? this is exactly what I'm going to look like after I resurrect. Interesting. Um, I don't know. I I, I mean, I think he's probably more glorious in his resurrected form. Um, But I do think this is probably the closest he got. And even if it was just a glimmer, then being in the presence for a prolonged period of time of the resurrected Jesus would have been more glorious because it wasn't just a moment. It was then permanent and something that we now are invited into to participate in. So uh, the image of of how he appeared may have been similar um, because he, I think Aquinas also elaborates that this is kind of a um, prefigurement of the resurrected body, that Jesus kind of displays elements here that he are similar to the elements that are displayed by him when he rises from the dead. So Aquinas, he has these four terms for when we're resurrected, things that we'll be able to do or characteristics of our bodies that... There'll be, uh, our bodies will have impassibility, meaning they will not suffer. They'll have agility, meaning we can move freely, kind of like Jesus moves into the upper room. He just kind of appears. Um, subtlety, meaning that we will no longer be, um, what's the word? Um, obstructed by physical matter. we we'll no longer, you know, we could pass through walls or, you know, whatever that is. And then the last one is uh, clarity, that we will literally shine. And so that's something that's being kind of Particularly highlighted here in Jesus's experience of the transfiguration how they are experiencing Jesus and not only Jesus But there's this uh, this presence of God the bright cloud that casts a shadow I mean that just seems very kind of like non-scientific to my ears right a bright cloud that casts a shadow seems very bizarre and yet You know, you you almost like kind of feel, even if something is very bright, something very massive, you almost feel like you're in the shadow of its presence, even if it isn't dark. And so that kind of clarity is even present from the presence of God, who's coming and speaking and saying, this is my beloved son. And so these characteristics are meant to show us, again, a glimpse of the glory that is to come, that awaits us, so that Peter, James, and John will have hope in these moments of despair and hopelessness that are going to come. Um, because that's the goal in mind. And that's a really great lesson for us. I mean, it's a great lesson for life, right? If we believe in the good news and we believe that heaven is the goal and that's available to us, then every time we enter into the sacraments, every time we enter into the word, we're being invited to have a glimpse of the glory that is to come. And that should bring us joy. Even in the liturgical calendar, once we go through the season of Lent, we enter the Easter season, and that is a season to remember the resurrection and the joy that we have as a resurrection people, so that we are reminded of the glory that is to come. So that when life is difficult, when we have our Lenten seasons of our own personal life and there are dips and valleys and moments of despair and hopelessness, helplessness, we can be reminded like that is what it's about. That is what it was about. The glory that is to come. The glimpses I've had of Jesus in my life when he's spoken to me, when I've encountered him in a powerful way. Remembering those and holding on to them because those are the things that sustain us through the difficult times. We have here in this passage the most frequented command of Jesus in all the Scripture, be not afraid in those moments of despair. But that's why the second most frequented command of Jesus is remember. Remember the times where God was with you. Remember the times that God was with you because in the moments where you don't feel like he's there, that will sustain you until you can feel his presence again. Yeah? Just curious, uh, how can they know it's Moses and Elijah. I mean, was it a formal month that. Yeah, name tags. You know, I don't know. Maybe Moses showed up with the tablets and was like, who else could I be, really? You know, Elijah came in on the chariot. Who else could I be? No one else did this, you know. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe they heard them conversing because it doesn't say what they talked about here. But in the Gospel of Luke, it says something to the effect of that they were discussing Jesus' exodus that was to come. His exodus, like, his exodus from this world, or something like that. Um, his departure that was going to come. So they're talking about the culmination of his mission and how that's going to end in Jerusalem. And so in the midst of the talking, maybe names are being thrown around. Um, there are also very, uh, these are two people who were so idolized and characterized by the Jewish people that there were probably very significant things that they would have noticed or have thought about Moses and Elijah that they could have just chosen to appear as to make it obvious. Um, I don't know what all of those things may have been. But, I mean, Elijah, you know, he was very much like John the Baptist. He wore the the hair shirt with camel's hair and the leather belt. And so he probably looked, you know, like John the Baptist, like kind of crazy, you know. And like, you know, all all the hair, eating wild locusts and honey. So, Uh, and then Moses, you know, maybe with his staff or the staff of Aaron, you know, they're very key symbolic things that would have probably clued in very faithful Jewish people to knowing who these people were. Yeah. And those two people, Moses and Elijah, they represent the culmination of the law, which was given to Moses, and the prophets, Elijah of which was believed to be the greatest. And Elijah was believed to return, the Jewish people expected that he would return to usher in the Messianic age. So whenever Elijah was going to be seen, that was when the Messiah was going to come. Now, Jesus articulates that and says that John the Baptist is the new Elijah. But just in case people didn't believe that, he has this opportunity as well to remind them in case you don't even think John the Baptist is the guy, here's the real deal. This is what's about to happen. So it's kind of like Jesus doubling down. Yes? Question about the tents. Mm-hmm. What about- would they have brought things to build tents? I mean, they were not. They were going up to a mountain. Yes, were they, yeah. Were they planning on camping? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go for a camp out. Um, I like that image. So um, the word here for tent is skene, which also is translated to booths. And that it comes from the Old Testament Feast of Booths. And this was one of the three required pilgrimage feasts of Jewish people Uh, that is prescribed in the books of Exodus and Leviticus. And so you have Passover, um, you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, and you have the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. The Feast of uh, Passover and Unleavened Bread are back-to-back, so they're kind of considered one. And so those are the three pilgrimage feasts. And so the Feast of Booths happens uh, at the end of the harvest, the season of the harvest. And so you're meant to then uh, celebrate the Sabbath, and then you're meant to construct A like basically an open-roofed outdoor structure that you sleep in for a week, and you're meant to celebrate and be jubilant and party and not do any heavy work or labor so that you can be reminded of God's faithfulness when the Israelite people were wandering in the desert for 40 years, living in very makeshift structures that are similar to these booths. And so uh, that is potentially a reference to what they're doing. There's a prophecy in the book of Zechariah very, very, like almost at the very end in chapter 14. Uh, It's the very last paragraph, basically. And it talks about the future, what is going to come, the prophecies that Zechariah has about Jerusalem and the tribe of Judah and all of the nations. And this is the first thing he says. He says, everyone who is left of all the nations that came against Jerusalem will go up year after year to bow down to the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And so there's this prophecy associated with the Feast of Tabernacles now coming to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, who's going to be present to them again or in a new way. And so a lot of biblical scholars think that that is a prophecy about this moment, Jesus in the transfiguration. And that is Peter maybe knowing that prophecy of Zechariah saying, hey. Why don't we uh, celebrate the Feast of Booths? Is it that time of year? Like, let's do this and fulfill this prophecy. It could also be the fact that Peter has no idea what is going on and just wants this moment to last. And <laughs> It's like, this is what we do when we glorify God and remember all of the great ways he's manifested throughout history, throughout the wandering for 40 years. We built these booths. And so let's do that here and stay here and celebrate and be here. And there's something to be said for in, in that desire for us, too, because I think when if you've ever been on a retreat or you've ever had a really powerful experience of God or, you know, you're just, you're having one of those experiences where like, oh, I just don't want this to end. I just don't want this to end. Can we just build the tent and stay here? I would always have that for like retreats with teenagers. We'd have a three-day retreat and they'd be like, Matt, this would be so great. Can we do this for a week? And I'm like, no, that'd be psychotic. I do not want to be around you that long. Like you guys are nuts. But it was like that desire, like they don't want to come down off the mountain. They want to stay in that place where they're so close to the Lord. And that's a beautiful thing. But the only reason to go on the retreat and have the mountaintop experience is so that we can come back down and tell everyone else so that they will come up the mountain with us next time. And so we can't just stay. We can't have a life that is always in a season of consolation and joy because without those moments of desolation and searching or expending that spiritual energy on others, there's no fruit that comes from it. It becomes this very selfish and self-fulfilling spiritual journey that is not for others. There is this great quote um, that Pope Francis said right uh, just early this last week um, about Lent. It may have even been today. I saw, I saw it, um, someone posted it online, and it was something to the effect of like, don't give up like your booze and your chocolate for Lent. Um, give up something, or if the things you're giving up aren't blessing or helping others, then you're essentially like losing, you're missing the point. This has to be something that benefits other people. You know, and when we think about Lent, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, what's always the one that probably doesn't get the most attention? Almsgiving. Or it's just like, I'll get the CRS bowl, I'll put all my change in, and I'll bring it back to church, and that's my almsgiving, you know? But like, Even our prayer and our fasting, they're usually more oriented toward ourselves. How can I grow in prayer? How can I fast in such a way to have self-control or lose weight or whatever it might be? It's never really being thought about and like how is this going to bless or help others? And that's the benefit of having the mountaintop experience and not staying there. Going down the mountain so that you can tell others, so that you can bless others, but at the opportune time in the right way. Don't tell them yet, wait until the Son of Man has raised. You know, So I think that's another lesson that we can take from this. That we live our spiritual life in seasons, and we do so for a purpose. And so it's not about longing for the season that we're not in or wondering why we're in the season that we are in. It's about being present and remembering. And then we do have that season of consolation, asking not how can this last forever, but what God is this for? Other questions, other things stand out. I want to bring up two people, the two, you know, very famous people from the Bible. You all remember Nadab and Abihu? You know Nadab and Abihu? Everyone remember them? Nadab and Abihu are Aaron's uh, firstborn sons. And in the uh, the book of Exodus, when they first, when God first appears um, and he descends on Mount Sinai, he's there for six days before Moses goes up. So remember that key point in the beginning of this passage, after six days, Jesus takes them up the mountain. And Jesus, being the new Moses, just having given the new law earlier in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, not replacing the old law, but deepening it, reminding them the point of the law, he's taking this position of the new Moses, the one who's prophesied to come after Moses, takes with him three people, just as Moses does. He takes Aaron, the high priest, and Aaron's two firstborn sons, who are brothers, Nadab and Abihu. And they go up with him a certain you know, amount of the way. And then Moses is the one that goes up and actually encounters God and receives the law and brings it back down. And later on in, uh, in Exodus, Exodus 28, these are the men who are called to the priesthood. Aaron, his sons, brought to you from among the Israelites that they may be priests, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, his two other sons. Okay, So the two eldest sons and Aaron are the ones who now ordained to the priesthood. They witnessed this thing. Similar things happen, right, to Peter, James, and John. They are brothers under the tutelage, under the authority of Peter. They're not his sons, but like he is their elder in this hierarchical sense. And what I love about this, I don't necessarily love this part, it's kind of sad, but what happens to Nadab and Abihu is they are killed because they offer unholy fire in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. We don't know necessarily what that means, but they basically offered something they were not allowed to offer. They tried to usurp their authority or do something they were not allowed to do, and they offered this unholy fire. And I was reading that this week, and I was thinking of James and John, and I was thinking particularly of this passage from chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke, when it says, um, On the way, they entered a Samaritan village to prepare for Jesus' reception there, but they would not welcome Jesus because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? And I read that, and I was like, it's Nadab and Abihu, like, all over again. Like, and it was just a little nerd moment for me. But I think it's really cool. Like, Jesus is being very intentional about telling everyone, like, I am the person who is to come. And the way that things were are not going to be so different. Like, there was a structure, there was a priesthood, but I am coming to redeem that. I'm coming to make that new. And so even though James and John, they have this desire to offer maybe a different kind of unholy fire, Jesus still redeems that. He makes it whole. He wants to bring it to its fullest, the the mission that he came to do to its fullest completion so that this new law, this new covenant can be established. And you start to see all these little similarities. Jesus shining like the sun, his garments white like light. That's how Moses' face would appear when he came down from Mount Sinai his face became radiant like diamonds people were so scared of Moses and the way he appeared he used to have to put a veil on whenever he would go up to Sinai or into the presence of the temple and this doesn't show up again until the day of the resurrection when they go and they see the angel inside the tomb and it says a man or a messenger of god appeared white and radiant with light and we see this image again in revelation many times of the elders in heaven appearing on with radiant white robes in fact the armies of heaven are indicated as these people in pure white linen robes. I just imagine these like angels in pajamas, like super clean pajamas, on white horses fighting to battle. Like it's just this crazy image, but they're, they're robed in light, literally. Jesus, who himself comes as the light of the world. He says it himself, I am the light of the world. And so all these images, all these similarities, Jesus is being so intentional here so clear to be able to communicate to not only the disciples then, but to us as we read, he knew what he was doing, and he wanted to give them hope. He wanted to give them every single sign they could possibly notice so that maybe they would latch onto one and be like, oh, this is what's been promised. This is what God has been working toward all along. So in the moments that would follow, again, of despair, of difficulty, of worry, of hopelessness, they would know that there is something bigger at work, that there's no way that this could possibly be a coincidence, that Jesus is intentionally, with authority and his glorious power, coming to do something that only he can do, that only God could do, that's been in the works for thousands of years, so that you and I would not have to suffer the punishment of our sins so that we could be with God forever in heaven for eternity. That is how much God loves us. Even in these small details, like anytime I notice that, anytime I notice like, oh, that's Nadab and Abihu, like even though that's such a nerdy thing to notice, what I hear then is like, yes, because I love you. Because I love you. That similarity is there, that foreshadowing, that trajectory of this is like how it was before and I'm making it new is also, you know, that I have a plan for you because I love you. When you notice these little details about scripture, about your life, about the ways you remember in the past, how God has been there, how God has pulled through, how God was faithful and brought you through those dark seasons to hear that voice. Yes, I did that because I love you. I know what I'm doing. And even though sin and suffering are part of this world and not part of his original plan for us, he's using them to bring about our greatest possible good. So when he permits it, it's so that he can bless us, so that he can bring greater good into our lives. And that to me is just incredible. It's like Jesus is literally, through the story of the transfiguration, transfiguring our lives. Our perception of how God is interacting, that he is so present to us, transforming everything. And that image of light, like when you're in a room and you can't see around certain things or it looks like shadows and the light shines, suddenly everything becomes clear. All the obstacles, what you're looking for can be found. It's the same is true in life. It's just, I think it's a beautiful thing to hold on to and remember in the coming week as we reflect on this and, and pray through this passage. So anyway, enough about Nadab and Abihu. Um, other <laughs> other questions? Yeah, Gage. Yeah, yes, please. Yeah, sort of. Um, while you were talking about it, Psalm 130, you came to mind how mm-hmm. good it is the brothers live in unity. It's like oil upon the head of Aaron running down upon his robes, like dew on Mount Mhm. Did anything else happen on Mount Rebens in the Old Old Testament? Not that I'm aware of, because it's so far north. I mean, maybe some of the early battles or where um, the Assyrians took over in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that's like from the north from that region, like way far. But it's, it's kind of outside, again, Judean territory, and they came from the totally other direction. So there may have been other things. I just i don't I'm not aware of them, but you know i I think that's a really cool piece of evidence that like, it seems like yeah, that yeah, oh yeah, yeah, definitely, and even if it wasn't, like does it really matter what mountain it was, yeah. like it's a new mount Sinai, you know, and that's it's the image, that's the imagery we need, but I think that's super cool, you know that yeah. detail too is awesome, yeah. so yeah, thank you for sharing that, yeah. Uh, well, my Charged in in what part? Oh yes, okay. Why do they use that Uh Just a translation choice, probably. You know, um, like if you charge someone with something, it's not like a, it's like you're just asking them to do this, but with like like emphasis. You know, you're like, I don't know how to define it without using the definition or using the word <laughs> using the word I'm defining to define the word. Um, but basically, you're like emphatically asking, like, I'm giving you this responsibility, kind of like you are in, uh, in charging someone with a responsibility. Um, you know, it's the same kind of etymology of the you know, same word. Yeah. Other questions, reflections, things stand out to you? I'm just looking at the map, Mount Kapor is actually near Nazareth. It is, yes. Yeah. But it, because of where they were, Um, and because of what happens surrounding this and because it had a fortress on it at the time of Jesus's life and ministry, people doubt whether or not that was the location. It could have been, you know, mountains are big, you know, didn't have to be on the very tippy top where the fortress was, could have been anywhere. Uh, another location was Mount, um, oh my gosh, do I have it written down here? Oh, Mount Meron, which is like, uh, 12 miles northeast of Galilee, M-E-R-O-N. And that's like kind of between the heights of Mount Tabor and Mount Hermon. So Mount Tabor is about two thousand feet. Mount uh, Mount, what's it called? Meron is four thousand feet, and then Mount Hermon is a little over nine thousand feet. Um, so Tabor, in in my estimation, seems the least likely, but it's also very persuasive because of all the historical, you know. Um, Associations with the, the Transfiguration. How most people, if you ask them, where is the Mount of Transfiguration? That's where the Church, the Church of the Transfiguration, is because people believe that for centuries. So, I think it's a, a good um, case to be made for it. But I think there's reasons to potentially think it's somewhere else as well. So, and and any of those could potentially have been on that journey back to Galilee, going that far south to then go that far back north to the region of Galilee. To Mount Tabor seems the least likely again if they're coming from Caesarea Philippi. But just kind of depends if you trust the chronology of Matthew. Yeah, Chrissy. I was just curious if you know how many times Jesus warned the disciples of his death, because we were just kind of using like here's another example where he's telling them I'm going to die. Yeah. Yet they seem so blindsided when it actually does happen. Yes, yeah, yeah. So in Matthew he has three distinct predictions. And the first one is right before this, the second one happens right after. Um In Matthew 17, later on 17, verse 22, is where it is, and then the third is a chapter or two later, after the rich young man in uh, in Matthew 20, 17, and they're labeled. They have headings that say the first, second, and third prediction. So yeah, it's the disciples were so attached to this idea that the Messiah was going to come and and root out Rome and going to be a military leader and reinstitute the kingdom of David, that it was so hard for them to understand, like, something else might happen. And I think, you know, as we close, this is really what was most on my heart when I was reading this, was are are we not letting God surprise us or are we not letting him surpass our preconceived notions about what he can do in my life, our life, and who he is? You know, I think sometimes we put God in, in, a, in a us-shaped box, you know, like he can only do this. This is all how he's working in my life. And, and I think the, the disciples were so attached to this idea of what the Messiah was going to be that even after seeing something as glorious as this, they still doubted. They still didn't get it. They still didn't take Jesus at his word that I'm going to suffer. But I showed you this so that you know later on it will be okay. And when you see me again like this, you'll remember, and you'll share this story. And yet they still, in their doubt, in their despair, in their hopelessness, they forgot, they ran away, they betrayed Jesus, they denied him. And we can struggle with all those same things. But I think it's a good question to ask, especially during this Lenten season. Like, am I limiting the ways in which God wants to bless me because I don't think he can surpass my preconceived notions about him? I don't think he can surprise me. I'm only looking in this one place for God to do this one thing, and I'm not just turning around and looking at all the other things that he could possibly be doing. Um, And so I think just having a sense of presence and gratitude um, is is something that that calls me to, at least. And so I offer that to you because I think it's something that we all struggle with and that we could all potentially learn from. So let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord we we thank you and we praise you for this time together it never seems long enough to really get into all of the things that the richness of scripture have to offer but we trust in your holy spirit that you brought out what was needed tonight for us to see lord that you know what you're doing that you love us that you're reminding us tonight of all of the times in our life you've been faithful of the power and the glory of your majesty the power you have to do Literally anything. And so we hope, Lord, that that will inspire and invite in us trust. Trust that you know what you are doing. To not be so ready to question why you're doing the things that you're doing, but to trust that you have a plan, that you have always been faithful, you will continue to be faithful, and that you are not only showing us that in your transfiguration, but you are desiring to transfigure us, to make us new, to show us the glory that awaits us. And so in the seasons of faith, in the seasons of life, and the moments where we feel very low or disconnected from you in spiritual desolation, we pray, Lord, we would remember the moments in our life where your glory has shone bright and that we would hang on to them. We pray, Lord, that you would give us many more of those moments so that we can continue to encounter you, for our faith to continue to grow and our trust to continue to deepen. And you, who are a God of wonders, We pray, God, that in the moments where we experience those things, we would not stay there forever, but we would seek to bring that glory and that gift to bless others. And so we ask, Lord, that you help us reflect on those things, to reflect on who we are being called to share that glory with, to reflect on the ways in which we maybe limit the ways you can work in our life, the things that we will notice, the ways our preconceived notions about you limit the ways we receive your blessing and help us to expand our view and open our hearts to accept and receive whatever you have to offer us today and in this Lenten season.
1: Bless us each in the
0: ways we most need it. And We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.